copy of the Bible. I think it might be helpful to you to follow along. We're going to cover the whole chapter. It's thought that perhaps this is about a month or less even than the day of Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2 when the church was established, the kingdom was established. We find in the case of uh, the day of Pentecost, baptism of the Holy Spirit, coming upon the apostles, they're having this great noise that attracted people's attention, and they saw the, well, it wasn't fire, but it was uh, tongues like as a fire, heard them speaking in tongues. So these miracles attracted the people. They had come to Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast. Well, in this case, we find that there's a miracle performed, and that attracted the people's attention. A miracle that attracted their attention, and Peter wanted to preach to them the gospel, which he did. So we find that it was about the, well, maybe I should say this. The background, this is the background for the first persecution of the apostles. When we read in Acts 2.43, the apostles performed many miracles and signs. And that's the reference. But here is a case where details are given concerning one of those many wonders and signs. It's about the hour of prayer. The Jews had three hours of prayer. The morning hour was at nine, eight, afternoon three, and the evening prayer would be at sunset. And so it's the middle one. The hour of prayer, 3 p.m. They've gone up for sacrificing a lamb to God. Now, Peter and John are going up, but they're not going there to sacrifice under the Mosaical law. They know that law had been done away with, but the Jews didn't understand that who had not accepted Jesus Christ. They had gone up there because it provided an excellent opportunity to preach the gospel. The people who were interested in God, they didn't have a full understanding yet concerning Christ, but they were spiritually minded. So they were in the temple area at the time the sacrifices were offered. We find that Peter and John are encountered, or encounter a man who is lame. He's been lame all of his life. The next chapter tells us that he's over 40 years of age. Man has never walked from the time of his birth. He's laid daily by those who carry him at the gate beautiful. And his purpose was to beg. Now, if this entrance to the gate beautiful was located at the east side of the court of women, sometimes called the treasury, then the beggar positioned himself to intercept those who were headed for the treasury. He was there to beg. And who better to beg from than those who have money and they're going to give it to the Lord. Now verses 3, 4, and 5 tell us that this lame man was expecting an alms. To mark it with an S, it ought to be pure, but that's the way the Bible puts it. An alms, that is a gift. He anticipated alms from Peter and John. Not a miracle. Modern, well, they call themselves miracle workers, will say that the reason they fail whenever they do fail to heal somebody is because the person just did not have enough faith. So the blame is placed on the individual that needs the miracle, not upon themselves. 
But uh, this is one example, and there are others that we could cite that shows that the person doesn't have to have faith. The apostles had the faith. They had the faith that would perform the miracle. For example, you think about when Jesus came to Nain, in A-I-N, up in Galilee. As he's coming into town, he was met by a procession of going out to the cemetery. Here was the son of a widow, had died. Jesus stops there. He saw the woman, the widow, had compassion upon her, and then he just said to the young man, Arise. And he sat up, began talking. Well, now, that man who was dead had no faith. That's just another example. We find also another example. <clears throat> I'm trying to think who this is. Oh, yeah. In uh, John 5, Jesus was in Jerusalem. He'd come to the, the pool of Bethesda. And there, there were a number of people who were waiting to get into the water because they had this tradition that whenever they saw the water stirring, that was an angel. And if they could just get in there, the angel would cure them. And so here was the man, Jesus sees him and said, Would thou be well? Would thou be whole? The man begins to explain, Well, yes, but I can't get into the water because when I'm trying to get there, somebody can move faster than I can. He didn't have any faith. Jesus turned to him and said, Well, arise. And the man stood up, took up his bed, and walked. No faith. In Matthew 13, 58, let me just read the last verse in Matthew 13. And uh, it helps us understand, I think, why Jesus didn't perform more miracles in his hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth. Verse 58 says, And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, he could have performed the miracles, whether believed or not. But he did not try because of their unbelief. They did not accept Jesus as the Son of God. And for that reason, he just turned his back on them and walked away. So that was not a failure on their part of not having faith. Well, they just didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. So after they say to this man, you know, arise, Peter reaches down and takes his hand, raises him up. And then we read the man began walking and leaping and praising God. Well, we can only begin to imagine the thrill this man must have experienced having a whole body again. Never stood up in his life. And now he's able to stand up, to walk, and to leap. <laughs> to me, that's an expression of overjoy. And praising God while he's doing that. And the multitudes must have known the man. They must have seen him there because daily he was brought, laid at the gate. Those who were interested in coming at the various times of the sacrifices in the temple should have recognized the man. And when they did, they were filled with wonder and amazement. People were now prepared to hear the gospel message. The Bible tells us that the lame man, his name was not given, was holding on to Peter and John. One version says he was holding tightly. Another says he clung to them. He was the clean type. He didn't want them to get away, evidently. And the crowd, great crowd, ran together in Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch was 45 feet wide, and the length of the court, this was the court of the Gentiles. 
So 45 feet that way, and it's the whole length of the court. You know, they had different courts. The Gentiles would be the first because they couldn't go any further in. After them would be the women or the treasury, that court. They couldn't go any further in. And then there would be the court of the other Israelite males. And then there would be the court where the high priest and all the priests, the Levites, could, uh, could work. But this was in the court of the Gentiles. This was the place where the scribes had their schools. This is where they had their debates. And this is the place where the merchants and the money changers plied their trades. You remember at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and at the end, he cleansed it. This was the place here on Solomon's porch. Peter used uh, the circumstances of this miracle to proclaim the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ to the excited crowd. He begins by saying, now, what surprised you about this miracle? God produced this miracle, he said, to glorify Jesus, his servant. Maybe your version says his child. Jesus was his servant. And so it was for Jesus' sake and for the man who was lame. But that's not what Peter said. It was to glorify Jesus. In rebuking the crowd, Peter draws three contrasts in his charges to the people. First, and this we begin in verse 13. <clears throat> It says, in rebuking the crowd, Peter draws first this contrast. He says, God glorified his servant, but you delivered him up and denied him. God glorified Jesus, but they delivered Jesus up to be crucified. That's a contrast. Secondly, Peter said, ye denied the holy and righteous one. By righteous, in this case, he's talking about being innocent. He was innocent, and yet you put him to death. You denied the holy and the righteous one and asked, in contrast, for a murderer. When Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, his charge was blasphemy. That's what they brought against him. That he claimed to be God. That he claimed to be the Messiah. But when he was brought before the governor, Pilate, it was sedition that they charged him with. He's trying to rebel against the Roman government. And uh, so those were the two types of charges that they brought against Jesus. You denied the Holy One. You denied the Innocent One when you asked for a murderer, Barabbas, to be released. That's a great contrast. And thirdly, Peter said, you killed the Prince of Life, the source of life. The Bible speaks about Jesus as being the one who did the creating. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can find in Colossians 1 and various other places, Jesus did the creating. God the Father planned it. He did the counseling. The Holy Spirit did the revealing. Jesus did the creating. He was the source of life. It says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it mentions the various things to which he gave life. It was Jesus. You remember when he came to Bethany? Lazarus has died. Martha meets him coming out of Bethany. 
Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He has the power to resurrect everybody and child at the end of time. He has given life to everybody. He is the prince, the source of life. But God raised him from the dead. Ye killed him, God raised him from the dead. And then he mentions that the apostles were the witnesses. We have witnessed this. You remember in Acts 1 and 8, when Jesus said before he went back to heaven to the 11 apostles then that uh, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and unto the end of the earth, the uttermost. And here again we find where they were witnesses, as we've already noticed other times this is stated. Now, in verse 17, he said uh, that they did it in ignorance, but it was still sin. It could be forgiven. There are places in the New Testament where it speaks about the Jews and their rulers putting Christ to death in ignorance. But what was the problem? They ignored the evidence. Oh, they, they didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God. That's why they put him to death. But there was enough evidence to convince them that had they been interested to know who they were putting to death. They did it in ignorance. But still, they were not excused. I think uh, we might think that way. A lot of people may think, well, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm, I'm ignorant of what God wants me to do. But he won't hold that accountable. He won't hold me accountable for being ignorant, not knowing. He certainly will. We have the responsibility of knowing his will. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, John 8, 32. We have to know God's will to be able to obey it. And without that obedience, we cannot have faith. Then in verse 18, he mentions that God showed by all the prophets what has happened, that Christ should suffer. Remember, Peter said in Acts 2.23, beginning his sermon there on the day of Pentecost, that it was by the foreknowledge of God. that they had put Jesus on the cross. Him, referring to Christ, being delivered up on the cross by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You by the hands of lawless men did crucify and slay. So here we find that Jesus, the Old Testament said, would suffer. And I, I cannot understand how millennialists can say that when Jesus came, he came to be a literal king upon the earth. And he didn't know he was going to be rejected and crucified. But all the prophets said he was. That's what Peter's telling us here. Surely Jesus knew it. God knew it. But they're ignorant of the Old Testament prophets when they reject this. Well, now, verse 19 is an interesting verse. Jesus is saying to these people, you need to repent. Verse 19. My version puts it this way. Repent ye therefore, 
and turn again. I believe the King James says, be converted. Uh, the American, New, New American Standard says, and return. Mine says, turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that so there may come seasons of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Was Peter telling these people something different than he told them on the day of Pentecost? No. <laughs> he was guided by the same Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus told them in Matthew 10 that when they stood up before a group or even before kings or councils or synagogue, they didn't have to worry about sermon notes. The Holy Spirit would put the message in their mouth. So that's what's happening here. And the Holy Spirit doesn't contradict himself. In Acts 2, 38, he said, Repent ye and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But here he says, beginning with repent, turn again, or be converted. Now, be converted <clears throat> sounds Calvinistic. It's an active verb, and they've made it a passive verb. As old man cannot do anything, we mentioned this in class this morning. It's up to God and up to the Holy Spirit to bring about his conversion. But this says, turn again. Man is to be active in doing God's will. So, Paul, would you put up uh, the chart we've got here? Paul made us another chart so that we can compare Acts 3.19 with Acts 2.38. Now, how's that expression go? Things equal to one another? No, things equal to the same thing or equal to one another? Something like that. So we find that in both cases it starts off repent. Acts 2.38, Acts 3.19, repent. Well, let's talk about repentance a little bit. Of course, that has reference to changing one's mind, changing one's heart with regard to sin, and that change of mind will lead to a changed life. Now, there are different processes along the way, but repentance is a change of mind or heart. Godly sorrow will produce that repentance, and that will lead to a change in, in, in life and on to heaven. Here are four things that are involved in repentance. One is regret. 2 Corinthians 7 and 10, Godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation. A repentance that bringeth no regrets, but worldly sorrow bringeth death. So it's godly sorrow, regretting what we've done because we know that has offended God and perhaps other people that we have sinned against. So to repent, we must regret what we've done that's wrong. Secondly, and this isn't on the board, but we're talking about repentance. Repentance involves resolving. We talk about making a change of mind. We make a decision. That's resolving to change and to please God. In um, Matthew 21 and 29, oh yeah, Jesus is telling a parable. He says, the father says to his son, I want you to go and work out in the field. He said, I won't go. But later, he repented himself and went. He changed his mind, and that's what was involved in repentance, and that's the word that's used there. Also, it involves reform. The life that's going to follow repentance will be a reformed life. 
In Matthew 3 and verse 8, remember John the Baptist preaching? He said, bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. If I don't see a change in your life, I'm not going to baptize you. That's what he said to the scribes and to the Pharisees, and he did not <laughs> baptize them because there was no repentance or no reformation. And then there's the restoration that will follow. Restoring things. Remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? Jesus went home with him that day. He was a chief publican, tax collector. And he stood up. I don't know why it said he stood up, but anyway, it says he stood up and said, Lord, if I have exacted all of any man, I will restore fourfold. Or I will re I'll give of my goods to the poor. And if I have exalted exacted aught of any man wrongfully I will restore fourfold there is an, a, a picture of repentance in the restoration regret, resolve reform, restore turn again now is equivalent we find to um, the next one after repentance he says, I want you to turn again. We mentioned be converted. But one is not passive in the process of salvation. So, repentance in Acts 2.38 is equivalent to repentance in Acts 3.19. See them across there. The second step in Acts 2.38 was be baptized. Peter says here, turn again. Now, what's the result? A repenting and being baptized or turning again in both cases the result is sins blotted out Acts 3.19 repentance of sins I mean remission of sin same idea isn't it? to blot out sins would mean just to erase them they're remitted they're forgiven they're pardoned so if repentance and baptism brings remission of sins repentance and turning again must include baptism because that is for the remission of sins. And then we have two commands, repent and turn again. We have two promises, remission of sins or blotting the sins out. And Acts 3.19 is that seasons of refreshing may come upon you. Is that not equal to the gift of the Holy Spirit? The gift of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit indwelling every Christian. Not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have promised and we find elsewhere in the Bible. The seasons of refreshing speak about the renewal of the soul. We become a Christian. We become a child of God. We receive all the blessings that are in Christ, Ephesians 1, 3, that is all the spiritual blessings. Those are seasons of refreshing there. By obeying what the Holy Spirit has revealed in the Bible will bring all of these blessings, all of this refreshing. All right, let's go to verses 20 and 21. And this has an interesting expression here. It says, whom the heavens must receive until the times of the restoration of all things. Now, what is Peter talking about? The restoration of all things. Well, that's what we have at the bottom, Paul put up there, so that's what we're going to talk about for a moment here. This is what Peter promised, whom the heavens, referring to Jesus, he went back to heaven. My version says the heavens must receive until. 
Hugo McCord in his uh, translation has that whom the heavens must hold. When I think about receiving, you know, I must receive something. Well, Jesus went back to heaven a long time ago, didn't he? After his resurrection, stayed on the earth 40 days, he went back to heaven, sat down at the right hand of God. And he's going to stay there until the times of the restoration of all things. But what is that? The restoration of, the, of all things. Well, the NIV puts it here. He must remain in heaven until the time comes. So he's gone back. He's going to stay there. He's going to be held there. He's going to remain there until the restoration of all things. So, what is the restoration of all things? Well, let me put it this way. It is the fulfillment of God's purpose in attempting to reclaim fallen mankind or humanity. The basic idea, reclaiming fallen mankind or humanity. It's the fulfillment of God's purpose in attempting to reclaim fallen humanity as now being implemented in the gospel age, the church age, the age in which we live, the consummation of which will occur when Jesus comes again. It's going to be completed before he comes again. Isn't that the way it's worded there? So, the first coming of Jesus marked the beginning of these times. His second coming, his final coming, marks the end of the restoration of all these things. So what is the restoration of all things? Reclaiming fallen humanity. Adam and Eve sinned. We've all sinned, fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And that separates us from God. But God wants man who will respond to be saved. So he sent Jesus to prepare that uh, gospel message to make it possible for him to save man. Okay, let's look at verses 22 to 23. He mentions Moses. And he quotes Moses from Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 19, but we'll just look at the way Peter puts it here. Verse 22 Moses indeed said, <clears throat> A prophet shall the Lord God raise up unto you from among your brethren like unto me. So he's going to be a Jew. He's coming from the children of Israel. He's going to be like Moses. We want to look at that in a moment. Like unto me, to him shall you hearken in all things whatsoever he shall speak unto you. Doesn't Jesus have all authority? Whatsoever you do, and word or indeed do all in the name that is by the authority of Jesus Christ, Colossians 3.70. So whatever he says, he's a prophet, as well as the king and the priest. He's God's spokesman. And this was said to Moses 1,500 years before Jesus came to the cross. He is a prophet, and we cannot disobey him. Whosoever he shall, whatsoever he shall speak unto you, that shall you do. And it shall be that every soul that shall not hearken to that prophet, that's Jesus, shall be utterly, utterly destroyed from among the people. So, Jesus, what do you want us to do? I'm not going to do that. 
we're going to be destroyed if that's our attitude, if that's our response, anybody's response. How was Moses and Jesus alike? Well, here's some similarities. God sent both of them. Both of them were saviors. Moses was the savior of the nation of Israel. Jesus was the savior of all men. They were both prophets. God spoke to both of them, to his people and others. They were both targets of persecution as babies. You remember Pharaoh had said every male child should be put to death. In Jesus' case, King Herod sent his men down to Bethlehem to slay the infants, trying to slay Jesus. They were both confirmed, or their messages were confirmed by miracles. Moses uh, performed a number of miracles as well as Jesus. On occasion, they were both rejected by their brethren, Moses and Jesus. They both gave laws. Here's the Mosaic law, we call it the Ten Commandment Law, the First Covenant Law, and Jesus' New Covenant Law for all men. Both were delivered. Others, both delivered, excuse me, others from bondage. The children of Israel were in Egyptian slavery. Moses led them out with God's direction and power. Jesus, in his case, has led men out of sin, delivered others from the bondage of sin. Also, they were both mediators. Moses for Israel, God spoke through Moses to his people, and Jesus, of course, is the mediator for all men, the only mediator there is today. So if men are going to follow Jesus, they need, need to approach God through him. And God raised up both to do their particular job. Now, there are places where we read about Jesus raising up, I mean, God raising up Jesus, that does not refer to his resurrection. Of course, that was a, that's a dominant part of the gospel, isn't it? Your death, burial, and resurrection. Not denying that. But there are places, and this is one of them, it speaks about God raising up Jesus, like he raised up David. And you read over in Acts 13, I think. So, God raised both of them up to do their particular work. Verse 24. Speaks about the Old Testament prophets spoke about these days. And this is important. These days, verse 24. The want to say, well, that's talking about, you know, when Jesus comes again and sets up his kingdom. Peter said, in the first century, a month, say, after the day of Pentecost, that all the prophets spoke about these days, not some other time, but these days. Remember, these days. Not some future event. He mentions the prophets five times, not counting referring to Moses and Samuel as two prominent prophets. Let me ask you this question. What does Peter's use of the Old Testament indicate about its benefits to our faith in Jesus Christ? Peter says, all of these prophets spoke with one mouth. They were in agreement about the Lord coming and dying, being raised from the dead, being the prophet to whom we should all bow and obey. Sons of the prophets is our next thing. 
Well, I should answer that question. What does Peter's use of the Old Testament indicate about its benefits to our faith in Jesus? That the more we know about what the Old Testament had to say about Jesus, the stronger our faith will be. We neglect the Old Testament, do we not? Sometimes. But we need to know it to understand the new. In verse 25, he speaks about the sons of the prophets. Again, another reference. But no, here he says, you, those to whom he's addressing, are the sons of the prophets. Well, in what sense were these unbelieving Jews sons of the prophets? Well, they were followers. They were disciples. They were pupils of the teachings of the prophets. They could, Peter says, inherit all the promises, all the blessings that were the subjects of their prophecies if, if they would repent and turn again, be baptized. Also, here's an expression, the covenant God made. Now, God made a number of covenants. He made a covenant with Adam, covenant with Noah and his descendants, or, yeah, I'd be his descendants. Made a covenant with uh, Abraham and made a covenant with David, made a covenant through Moses, the children of Israel. Jesus made a covenant, number of covenants. But here he's talking about the covenant he made with the fathers, and then he specifies Abraham. And then, of course, there was Isaac and Jacob. This covenant was that he would make of them a great nation. They would be given the land, but it's the last part of that covenant that Peter quotes. That all families or all nations will be blessed through thy seed. And when we turn to Galatians 3 and 16, he again tells us that this seed, the promise, referred to Jesus. Not of many, but of one. One seed, and that was Christ. So here he's talking about the covenant that God made had reference to all nations and all families being blessed through Jesus, his servant. 